you would take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter number 9. Hebrews, chapter number 9. We'll look together this morning at all of chapter 9, continuing a discussion that we began last week in chapter 8, where the emphasis was on the reality that Jesus is a better high priest who has made for us a better covenant in the new covenant, even than the covenant God made between Israel with Moses. The Bible that you're holding in your hands, the Bible in which you turn to Hebrews chapter 9, there are two testaments. We often refer to the Old Testament and the New Testament. Another way of referring to that is by saying Old Covenant and New Covenant. What you have in the Old Testament is a chronicling of God's establishment of that covenant with the people of Israel. From the creation of man in Genesis 1, very quickly history turns to focus on a man named Abram, eventually called Abraham, who was called from his family in Ur of the Chaldeans to be the family head, the patriarchal head of a new people, a people through whom God would bless the nations. The 12 sons of Abraham became the patriarchal heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. Descending from Abraham and his 12 sons was the nation of Israel. Through a series of events told in the latter chapters of the book of Genesis, the people of Israel eventually found themselves in slavery in the kingdom of Egypt. And through the ministry of a prophet named Moses, God would bring his people out of their Egyptian bondage. Through the ministry of Moses, God would establish a covenant between himself and the nation of Israel. What remains in the Old Testament is again a chronicling of God's faithfulness to that covenant and a chronicling of the inability of the nation of Israel to keep the requirements of that specific covenant. In fact, the Old Testament closes on a note of despair. Israel had been in exile. They had now returned to the promised land. They had even reconstructed the temple. But the elders of Israel wept at the sight of this new temple, acknowledging that it was pale in comparison to the glory of the former temple, the Temple of Solomon. And though they had come to reside again in the promised land, there seemed to be yet something undone about their presence there. That is the Old Testament. And then the New Testament begins with the coming of Jesus, who came to inaugurate a new covenant by his blood to establish a new connection, a new relationship, a new covenant between God and his people. Only this time, the people of God would not be exclusive to a nation or an ethnic group. Under this covenant, God would call to himself people of every tribe and tongue and nation, binding them, them to himself without condition by faith in Jesus Christ. All of the shortcomings of Israel and all of the shortcomings of the former covenant now being accounted for in the establishment of this new covenant. We dealt with that a bit in last week's text. Whereas under the covenant God made with Moses, the law of God was written on stone tablets, God would now internalize the law under the new covenant, putting it into the minds and hearts of his people. 
not only making them aware of the requirements of the covenant, of God's will and God's way and what was right in the economy of God, but granting them the ability, an ability foreign to the nation of Israel, a new ability to do what God required of them. God promised that in a new and exciting way under this new covenant, although God had been present in many ways with the nation of Israel, that under this new covenant, God would be ever present in the lives of his people in a way that exceeds his presence in a pillar of fire by by night and a cloud by day, in a way that exceeds his presence through miracle after miracle in delivering Israel from their Egyptian bondage, in a way that exceeds anything experienced under that old covenant, God said, I will be their God and they will be my people. God has done something entirely new, extraordinary, powerful, and binding through the high priestly ministry of his son, Jesus Christ. It's there we pick up in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse number 1. If you found your way there, join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. The Bible says here, now the first covenant also had regulations for ministry and an earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was set up in the, and in the first room, which is called the holy place, where the lampstand, the table, and the presentation loaves. Behind the second curtain, the tabernacle was called the most holy place, and it contained the gold altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered with gold on all sides in which there was a gold jar containing the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. The cherubim of glory were above it, overshadowing the mercy seat. It's not possible to speak about these things in detail right now. With these things set up this way, the priests enter the first room repeatedly performing their ministry. But the high priest alone enters the second room, and he does that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed while the first tabernacle was still standing. This is a symbol for the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect a worshiper's conscience. They are physical regulations and only deal with food, drink, and various washings imposed until the time of restoration. But the Messiah has appeared, high priest of the good things that have come, in the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered the most holy place once for all, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow sprinkling those who are defiled sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of the Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called might receive the promise of the eternal inheritance, because a death has taken place for redemption from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Where a will exists, the death of the one who made it must be established, for a will is valid only when people die, since it is never enforced while the one who made it is living. 
That is why even the first covenant was inaugurated with blood. For when every command had been proclaimed by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats along with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded for you. In the same way, he sprinkled the tabernacle and all the articles of worship with blood. According to the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves to be purified with better sacrifices than these. For the Messiah did not enter a sanctuary made with hands, only a model of the true one, but into heaven itself, so that he might now appear in the presence of God for us. He didn't do this to offer himself many times as the high priest enters the sanctuary yearly with the blood of another. Otherwise, he would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But now he has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for people to die once, and after this judgment, so also the Messiah, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. Within that old covenant system, in fact, central to that old covenant system was the establishment of a tabernacle later to be replaced by the more permanent temple. Within that tabernacle were two places understood to be the most holy places within the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. There was a larger room referred to here as the holy place. And in the holy place were a number of articles significant in the history of Israel, articles that sort of commemorated, were reminders of God's presence and provision in the history of Israel. And it was in the holy place the priest would go to perform their priestly responsibilities. But even within the holy place was yet another room, a room referred to as the most holy place, and a room that was kept from, that others were kept from entering by the presence of a curtain, later a veil in the temple. These two rooms are described in verses 1 through 5. Within that most holy place was a gold altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered with gold on all sides. Within the Ark was a gold jar containing manna, Aaron's staff that budded, that staff that features prominently in the miracles that Moses and Aaron perform before the Egyptian Pharaoh, and the tablets of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, were inside the Ark of the Covenant. Verse 5 says, the cherubim of glory were above it, overshadowing the mercy seat. Those two golden statues of cherubim or angels seated on each side of the Ark of the Covenant. That was the place where God was most personally to meet with the people of Israel. Verse 6, the Bible says, with these things set up this way, the priests enter the first room repeatedly, performing their ministry, 
but the high priest alone enters the second room, and he does that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. In the Apostle Paul's writings, in the 13 letters that Paul writes in the New Testament, one of the things he teaches us is that although the new covenant has replaced the old, the old covenant still has a function and that it trains us or it teaches us and often even convicts us of the beauty and the power and the necessity of the new covenant. Most of the time, Paul is referring to the moral requirements of the old covenant. You and I are taught that we are sinful people by the commandments of God issued under the old covenant. You need look no further than the Ten Commandments to make the discovery that you and I are sinful and broken and in desperate need of forgiveness that can only be found in Jesus. But the Old Covenant teaches us more than that. In fact, one of the things that we're trained to look for or we learn in the Old Covenant is the necessity of blood for the forgiveness of sin. In the words of a later verse here, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. That annual access the high priest enjoyed to the most holy place was conditioned upon a blood sacrifice for his sins and the sins of the people. To enter into that most holy place without atoning blood was absolutely unthinkable. In fact, we know from the history of Israel that to enter that place with atoning blood was almost unthinkable. It was a daring and dangerous and frightful thing to do. Perhaps you remember that experience in 1 Samuel when the Ark of the Covenant, that place of God's presence, got away from the nation of Israel. In their pride and their arrogance, God allowed for their defeat at the hand of the Philistines, and they took captive the Ark of the Covenant. In an effort to bring it back, the ark was being pulled by oxen, and one man named Uzzah reached to grab at the ark of the covenant to prevent it from falling to the ground. And that touch, in a moment, believing himself to be doing something that was right, led to his instant death. It was a dangerous thing to be in proximity to God, that kind of proximity to a perfectly holy God. But with atoning blood, the high priest would enter in. One of the lessons we're learning from the Old Covenant in this passage and many others is the necessity of atoning blood for the forgiveness of our sin and access to God. But there's more still. In verses 8 and following, the preacher of Hebrews interprets the experience of the high priest in entering in but once a year. He says in verse 8, the Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed while the first tabernacle was still standing. In other words, this limited access under the old covenant was training us to understand that there was a fuller access yet to come helping us to come to terms with the reality that we are yet limited in terms of our ability to access God who is in heaven. Now understand that God is everywhere. That's not a New Testament phenomenon. That's part of the nature of God. He is omnipresent. 
But God had decreed in Exodus 25, 22, that it's between the cherubim at the Ark of the Covenant, I will meet with my people. In fact, he says specifically, I will meet you, Israel, between the two cherubim. The limited access the high priest had, the limited access the nation of Israel had was training the people that something more is needed. So much symbolism that's tied to this idea. It seems to be so much better understood from those coming out of that old covenant experience than it is in our day. We read through that line in the gospel narrative of Jesus' death on the cross and the tearing of that veil in the temple from the top to the bottom, that veil that would have separated the most holy place from the holy place and access to the world outside. There's a little line in John chapter 20 and verse number 11 that is seldom recognized for its significance. Mary Magdalene is in despair outside of the garden grave, and she finally gets the courage to tiptoe in, to peer inside, and to see the place where the body of Jesus once lay. And the Bible says in that verse that what she sees on the stone table where Jesus once lied dead were the linen clothes he wore to the grave folded neatly in their place with an angel at each end of that stone table. God said he'd meet between the cherubim with the people of Israel. And he signifies in that single verse that no longer is the place of meeting between golden cherubim at the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies inside the holy place. The place that God has committed himself under the new covenant to meet with his people is in the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. There's a new, exciting access to God, an access exclusive to the new covenant we now enjoy because of Christ's redeeming work for us. Under the new covenant, we learn of the necessity of blood, but we're being trained here that under the new covenant, there is a new and exciting, extraordinary access that we enjoy to God, one we're trained to appreciate through the lens of that old covenant experience. Verse 9, the preacher continues, this is a symbol for the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the worshiper's conscience. There are physical uh, regulations and only deal with food, drink, and various washings imposed until the time of restoration. All of that, everything that was to unfold under the old covenant was a shadow of what was to come fully, finally, perfectly in Jesus. Look at verse 11. But the Messiah has appeared, high priest of the good things that have come, in the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered the most holy place once for all, not by the blood of goats and calves, by his, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption." That is, Jesus is not an earthly priest who enters into an earthly replica of the heavenly reality. This was established in chapter 8. We considered this last week and I think to some extent even the week before. That Moses was instructed to build the earthly tabernacle after the pattern of the heavenly reality. The tabernacle was a replica of the real thing in heaven. 
Jesus, not being an earthly priest, was not concerned with priestly responsibilities in his earthly ministry. Jesus, being a heavenly priest, enters not into the earthly replica, but the heavenly reality to do for us under the new covenant what that old system could never do for us. Jesus enters in not to make a sacrificial offering of the blood of bulls and goats, but to make an eternal offering once and for all of his very shed blood. Verse 13 says, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow sprinkling those who are defiled sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of the Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works to serve the living God? Often the Old Testament system of purification is misunderstood as the the purification of the heart or the soul, forgiveness in the same sense that we consider forgiveness under the new covenant, but that's not the way it works. The forgiveness of our sin in the sense we most often think has always exclusively come through Jesus. From our perspective, looking back with eyes of faith at the finished work of Christ at the cross and an empty garden grave, which is the guarantee of his resurrection. But from their perspective, from the other side of the cross and Calvary, it was to look with eyes of faith to the future at what God had promised he would do through the Messiah. The sacrificial offerings made in the tabernacle and in the temple were about the purification of the people from their ceremonial uncleanness. In order to participate in worship, to enjoy proximity to others within the family of God, to be a part of tabernacle activities required a level of cleanness prescribed in the laws of Moses. The blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of the ashes of a young calf could alleviate your problem of impurity. The law of Moses was about making the common uncommon, the defiled holy, purifying those who had been touched or tainted in some way by uncleanness. Arguing from lesser to greater here, the preacher says, if the blood of bulls and goats is sufficient to sanctify your flesh, to purify you such that you can come into the company of the people of God, How much more might we rest in the sufficiency and the power of the shed blood of Jesus, a lamb without spot or blemish, the only begotten Son of God, the Lamb of God, sent to take away the sin of the world. How much more might we rest in that reality and relish the power of his forgiving grace? What we find in Jesus cannot be performed by any number of sacrifices made of bloods, uh, goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow. This is a work unique to Christ and to Christ alone. Verse 15, the Bible says, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called might receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. That is to say, the promise of heaven is exclusive to those who come under the new covenant by the blood of Jesus. I'll say again, the promise of heaven is exclusive to those. Let me say it in a more simple way. The only way you or I are going to heaven is through Jesus Christ. That's it. Verse 15 continues, 
explaining that because a death has taken place for redemption from the transgressions committed under the first covenant, these promises have now been enacted. He's the mediator of a better covenant so that we might receive these promises through his death. This is just a very Jewish way, a very Hebrew way of saying that Jesus' death is essential to our salvation. We are saved from our sin through the death of Jesus by the shedding of his blood. I want to press at this for just a moment. I want you to understand how critically important this is. We talk in these terms. We say that we are saved by our faith. We say that we are saved through making a decision to follow Jesus. We say that we are saved by our repentance. And all of those are certainly the product of God's work in us. But I want you to know that in a very real sense, it's not even your faith. It's not even your repentance. There is no act that you have taken action on. It is the death of Jesus that saves us from our sin. Understand that when we say that it's not the things that we do, have done, or will do that save us, but the work that Jesus has done, there are no qualifications to such a statement. The death of Jesus is crucial. It is central to our salvation. The death of Christ initiates or inaugurates the promises of the new covenant for us. Among them is the promise of heaven and the promise that we might be forgiven of our sins. Verse 16 says, where a will exists, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will is valid only when people die since it is never in force while the one who made it is living. That is why even the first covenant was inaugurated with blood. For when every command had been proclaimed by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats along with water, scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded for you. In the same way, he sprinkled the tabernacle and all the articles of worship with blood, according to the law, almost everything is purified with blood. So what's being described here, although it may seem difficult to understand with just a, a superficial reading or even a reading within a setting like this, the, the death of Jesus and the blood of Jesus inaugurate, initiate all of the promises. It enacts the promises of the new covenant. The blood of Jesus initiates the promises. It signs and seals and secures forever the promises of the new covenant God has made for me and for you. Our passage closes with this observation. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. In the early days of preaching ministry, I had only recently experienced a call to ministry, and so guys sort of began to pull me in, and there was some mentoring and discipling that was happening and some encouragement in ministry. And the old heads, as I would call them, often spoke in those days. It feels like a long, long time ago, not so long ago. I'm not that old. But it, uh, the old heads would often talk about this. Uh, they, they almost cast it as a battle against the blood. 
as, as though there were real efforts being made in certain circles to sort of take conversation about the blood of Jesus out of our conversations about the gospel. Being the cynical young man that I was, I always wondered if that was a very real threat. It certainly didn't seem to be within our circles, and I wasn't aware of any real circle that had legitimacy where that was a real concerted effort. It seemed to me like the kind of thing that the old heads could say, and it provided them with a nice fold to preach against and to stomp and yell on Sunday morning. In any event, the truth remains, apart from the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Brothers and sisters, hear me carefully. Apart from the shedding of Jesus' blood, apart from his death, there is no forgiveness of our sin. Apart from the death and the letting of Christ's blood, there is no salvation for our soul. Verses 23 through 28 provide us with something of a conclusion and summary of what has been discussed already in our passage. Verse 23 says, therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves to be purified with better sacrifices than these. For the Messiah didn't enter a sanctuary made with hands, only a model of the true one, but into heaven itself, so that he might now appear in the presence of God for us. He didn't do this to offer himself many times as the high priest enters the sanctuary yearly with the blood of another. Otherwise, he would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But now he has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. What's being demonstrated here is that not only is Jesus a better high priest, a better high priest who has for us a better covenant. He is himself a better sacrifice. Those earthly sacrifices were appropriate to an earthly tabernacle. But only a heavenly sacrifice would do when it came to the heavenly reality represented in that replica that was the earthly tabernacle. Jesus is a better sacrifice. Now let's sort of run the list here. We began in Hebrews by noting that Jesus is a better revelation of God than the Old Testament. Jesus reveals for us the perfect character of God. He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is better than the angels. For those of you who may be inclined toward supernaturalism or spiritualism on some strange level, Jesus is a better point of access to God, a better representation of him, and has the ability of drawing near in powerful ways, a greater power than any angel could ever hope or dream or imagine to bear. Jesus is better than Moses. Moses was the mediator of that old covenant, but Jesus has mediated a new covenant. Moses was faithful in the house, but Jesus is, as creator God, the builder of the house. Jesus is better than Joshua. Joshua, that general of Israel that was to lead them into the promised land and to a season of great rest. What Joshua came short of delivering on, Jesus has delivered in perfection in that he provides for us a rest that knows no end. Jesus is a better high priest. Every earthly high priest is limited to their natural span of life, but Jesus is a high priest forever. According to the order of Melchizedek, he always intercedes for our needs, representing our interests before the Father, even as he represents the Father before us. 
Jesus, by his death and resurrection, by the shedding of his blood, has inaugurated a new covenant, a new covenant that promises for us the gift of heaven, the treasure of heaven, and the promise of the forgiveness of our sin. In Christ, you and I may be forgiven of all of our sins because of what Jesus has done for us. Here we see that Jesus is a better sacrifice. What the blood of bulls and goats could not do, Jesus has done by the shedding of his own blood, blood essential to our salvation. Do you cherish that reality? Is, 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 that, is that something of great value in your heart and mind or the kind of thing toward which you're somewhat ambivalent or apathetic? God has sent his son that his blood would be shed, that our sin might be atoned for. Remember again the experience of, of Israel. When God sent Moses and Aaron to bring them out of their Egyptian bondage, the way God prevailed on the hearts of Pharaoh and his people, on the nation of Egypt, was through ten plagues, and they were disastrous. Frogs and lice and flies and locusts. But the worst of them all was the final plague, the death of the firstborn. God declared that the firstborn of every house, man and beast, would die as the death angel passed over the land of Egypt on that fateful night. And the only hope of rescue, the instruction of God for the people of Israel, was that they were to take a lamb without spot or blemish, sacrifice it, and paint the doorpost of their home with the blood of that sacrificial lamb, so that when the death angel passed by, he might take note and pass over the homes of those who had been covered in the blood. What Jesus has done for us under the new covenant is to guarantee that on that last day, when no angel but Jesus himself with a sharp and two-edged sword, coming both in salvation and in judgment, when he passes through the land to bring grace and justice, that he might pass over the hearts of those who have taken shelter behind the blood of the Lamb. The shedding of his blood is necessary to our salvation, and it is the only place of refuge. It is the only safe place for us to find ourselves hidden on that great day of judgment. Verse 28 says, So also the Messiah, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Christ is coming. And on that day, the only safe place is behind the blood. It's behind the blood. It's behind the blood. The old covenant functions to teach us of the preciousness of that blood shed for us. We come to passages like this, uh, you know, sometimes I struggle at even how to deal with them. But what I want to make sure of is that regardless of our level of understanding or appreciation for the complexity of such passages, that the simple gospel truth is communicated such that everyone at every level can understand it clearly. The only access we have to heaven and the only hope we have that our sins might be forgiven 
is in Jesus. The means God has given us to make access to heaven and to make access of forgiveness. In other words, the way that you can receive the promises of the new covenant are by faith and repentance. Turning away from the things of this world. The power of the gospel is such that when we see Christ for who he is, we are glad to run away from the cares and concerns of this world and into the warm embrace of the one who bled and died for us. We turn away from the things of this life. We turn to Christ, believing in him and all of the promises of the gospel. Maybe that's difficult to sort of wrestle with in speaking in the terms we've spoken in this morning, which are so outside of our culture, outside of normal in terms of the way we typically think about things. That may be a struggle for you, but I would simply say to you that there's an empty grave outside the city of Jerusalem that attests to the truthfulness of the gospel. You must turn away from your sin, and you must come to Christ in faith if you've any hope of heaven, any hope of the forgiveness of your sin. No longer under that old covenant, some far and strange place that we need priestly access to, to access God or to meet with God or to spend time with God. All of our hope, all of the access that we stand to enjoy to God who is in heaven is made available to us through Jesus Christ. You must come to Christ. You must come to Christ. You must. And your friends and neighbors no matter how good or moral or what system of values they may have, apart from coming under the shed blood of Jesus, will likewise perish. This is our hope. Indeed, this is our only hope. So my strong invitation to you this morning is to find refuge for your soul behind the shed blood of Jesus, the only hope for our forgiveness and the promise of heaven that awaits. And my strong exhortation to those of you who are here as believers, the overwhelming majority who have indeed come under that blood, is to relish this great privilege we have of hiding in Christ, of taking this place of refuge in him, that you not, not wax cold or indifferent or be ambivalent toward Christ and all that he's done for us, but remember the tremendous sacrifice necessary that we might have this standing, not the product of who we are or where we came from, our ethnic identity, our background, our location, where God placed us geographically. Our standing in God is exclusively the result of Jesus' death on our behalf, the shedding of his blood and the resurrection of his once dead body. Aren't you glad for the blood of Jesus and all that it holds forth for us? Believe, believe, believe. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth. I pray that through the blood of Jesus, you would grant forgiveness for our sin. That, Father, you, you would, through the power of your Holy Spirit, drill into the hardest of hearts, plant the seed of the gospel, that some might have eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to discern. God, I ask that you would give the gift of faith, that you would bring some from death in sin to life in Christ, that you would do here this morning the work of the new birth, Grant through the work of your spirit understanding of the message of the gospel. May Jesus receive all the praise.
and the glory. It's in his name we pray. Amen.